So with that uh, said, let's uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 5, covering verses 13 to 21. Let's open in prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for uh, this morning. And uh, we thank you for this church. We thank you for those that you have brought along uh, today, for the new faces that are here. Lord, that you would, uh, Lord, speak your truth into each one of our hearts this morning, that we would be receptive, that we would, uh, Lord, have hearts of rejoicing. Uh, Lord, that we would have hearts of thanksgiving towards you, even as we are going to be partaking of communion, Lord, and remembering what you've accomplished for us. And Lord, we thank you for uh, our great salvation, Lord, even that we're learning about through this book of Romans. Lord, that you would uh, just put these things into our hearts in a greater way, that we would understand them in a greater way. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We, uh, I titled this morning's message, and it's a long title, One Man's Disobedience and One Man's Obedience. And as we've been going through these first five chapters of Romans, we've already talked about justification by faith. It's actually one of the major themes of the book of Romans. How a person gets right in the eyes of God. How a person comes into right standing with God. That's justification by faith. We also learn that this justification by faith, that it's apart from any works that we could ever do. It's apart from the keeping of the law for the Jew, and it was apart from any work that any man might think that he could do for God to be right in his eyes. It's, you see, it's always been by faith. And Paul proves that in the fourth chapter of Romans. We also looked at the results of our justification, that we've been justified, and what are the benefits to you and I? Now that we've been made right in the eyes of God, Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 5. This morning, we're going to finish chapter 5, and we're going to really complete this whole subject of justification by faith. But this last portion of it, really, we might say, is the explanation of our justification by faith. It needed a little bit more clarification in the Jew's mind, and it needs clarification even for the Gentile. We need to understand what justification and why we need it. Remember when I started this book, I said that the book of Romans has been referred to as the constitution of our faith. And we need to know it well. Uh, I don't know the Constitution very well. I can't quote that. But I do know the book of Romans. And I'm learning the book of Romans. That we need to know the Constitution of our faith. What Christ has done for us. Why we're saved. And how He did it. We uh, started this fifth chapter last week. Or we were actually in verse 12. And that's as far as we got. If you were here last week, I thought we were going to complete the chapter and we only did one verse. So we didn't get too far in it, but we are going to finish the chapter today. 
We, um, I really laid some groundwork last week. And that groundwork is important for the remainder of this chapter. It's really foundational. And we had to go all the way back to the, to the garden. We had to go back to the book of Genesis. And we had to see and learn about the fall of Adam and how that affected us. And now Paul is going to explain in more detail really what that means. But before we uh, get into our text, let's read first off, verse, starting in verse 6 to verse 12. It's important for us to, to be reminded of this. Verse 6 says, For when we were still without strength, when we were still helpless. Do you remember your days before you knew the Lord? When we were still helpless. We didn't think we were helpless then. But that day that you came to realize your need for Jesus Christ, you realized your sin, you realized your helplessness, you realized you needed a salvation. When we were still without strength and in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He had a right time, a prescribed time that he would come and break forth into this dark world into, for one purpose to save sinners. It's why Jesus Christ came. He died for the ungodly. And then it goes on to tell us, Paul says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. I I think that Paul's point here is, is that Some of us can wrap our heads around the fact that somebody might be willing to die for an upright person in this life. I mean, that's conceivable. But it's not really conceivable for us to think that we would die for somebody that has violated us in life. Somebody that has harmed us. Somebody that has done wrong to us. It's really inconceivable that there would be that kind of love within us, that we would die for that kind of person. But that's what Jesus Christ did. He died for the ungodly. He died for those that had a need of a Savior. Actually, the New Living Translation reads this way. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. And and so that's really how we're able to really understand how great God's love is towards mankind. That He did it for us while we were yet sinners. In verse 8, we read, For God demonstrated or He proved His love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, notice that it's past tense, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. That's our victory shout. That we don't stand under God's wrath, that we have already been justified. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have already been justified in the eyes of God. You already have entrance into heaven. 
You already have that future hope that you're going to have your new body someday and you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. You've been justified and you have been saved already from the wrath that's to come. In verse 10, we read, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Remember that word reconciliation has to do with this relationship that mankind has with God, that it was broken through sin. And to be reconciled means that you have been brought back into a good relationship with God. God reconciled you. He mended. He made that relationship whole again. We were reconciled through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, again it's past tense, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We've been justified. We've, been, we've received reconciliation, brought back in. This is the benefits. It's what we, what we know that we have as, as Christians, that we have a right relationship with the living God. Now look at verse 12, where we were at last Sunday. Therefore, because of what I just read to you, just as through one man, he's speaking of Adam, all the way back in the garden, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the dilemma that this world is in. That's the place that this world is in. I, I, I share that it's that sinking ship of sin. That this whole world really is in that same place. One of the questions that I brought up last week had to do with the issue of sin. It had to do with defining sin. And you would think that when you talk about sin, that we would all and that everyone would be on the same page in their definition of it. Uh, but the fact is that a lot of people have a lot of different ideas of what they call sin, what they think is sin. But God has made it very clear, really, what sin is. And our Bibles, it's the Greek word hamartia, which means by definition to fail to hit the mark. You know the archers that get out there with the bow and they stretch it out to shoot that bullseye on the target? And that would have been in the day, that would have been what they would have said when that archer drew back and shot that arrow towards the center of that bullseye. And if it did not hit dead center bullseye, you've sinned. You've missed the mark. You've fallen short, really, of perfection. And you see, that's the place, that's the dilemma that mankind is in. You fall, and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. God's perfection is what's required for a, a man or a woman to enter into His presence, and we have all fallen short of that perfection. We've all sinned. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned. That, that means everyone. That's all of us. For all have sinned, and we all fall short 
of the glory of God. We read in the book of Ecclesiastes 7.20. It tells us this, and it, and it makes it very clear that everyone in this world has the same problem. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, For there is not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin. Not one. So no one is going to be able to stand before God someday, and God's going to say, you know what? You're one of the few, but you know what? You didn't sin. You never fell short. You lived perfectly. You did. I don't think any one of us in our right mind anyway would be able to say that, that we haven't sinned, that we haven't fallen short of God's perfection. You see, sin, simply put, is doing wrong. It's what we would simply explain if we were talking to our children. It's doing wrong. It's doing something that mom and dad told you not to do. It's a sin. You see, when God says, thou shalt not steal, and then we turn around and we steal, that's sin. That's falling short. And then multiply that by all the temptations and sins of life. We all fall short. But we need to keep in mind, from what we read in verse 12, that man's problem of sin actually goes deeper than just the outward acts of sin that we do. You see, there is a very nature, a sin nature, that has been passed down to mankind. We've inherited it, so to speak. We inherited it from Adam and the failure of Adam going all the way to the first book of the Bible when Adam and Eve sinned in that garden and through Adam's sin, death and sin passed upon all men. That's the point that the Apostle Paul is making in this last chapter. He's making that point to show you and I that I'm going to give you the remedy. After you realize how fallen you are and in the state that you are, here's the remedy. You need to be justified by Jesus Christ. His righteousness needs to be put to your account so that you can stand before the living God someday. James 4.17 says this, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. That's a great verse that defines what sin is. When you know to do good and you don't do it, it's sin. We actually find this word sin 45 times in the book of Romans. The only other, uh, the next book that you see is the Gospel of John. 16 times you find it in the Gospel of John. And from there it just goes about Romans 45 times. You see this word sin throughout the 16 chapters of Romans. In 1 John 3, 4, it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Now, lawlessness is really, by definition, somebody that lives without law. Lawlessness without law. In other words, I'm not accountable to God, nor to His laws, nor to His Word. 
And that's what it tells us in Romans chapter 8. They're not subject to the things of God, neither indeed can be. In other words, they don't even really care. You can maybe remember your days when you could care less what God thought. You could care less if somebody said you were a sinner. You didn't care. You were going to live your life the way. And that's really what lawlessness is. It's really another way of just defining sin. In 1 John 5.17, it says that all unrighteousness is sin. Now, the first time that we saw this word in Romans was in chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are we better than they, speaking about Jew and Gentile? Not at all, for we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. And the point being is that Paul does not want any person to try and escape this issue of sin. You see, if you can escape it and think you're all right and have your own kind of self-righteous attitude, and I think I'm, you know, I'm all right and I think God would still accept me and I've never really done that bad of, to anybody, and you start justifying, you see, that really says what God did on the cross by sending His Son Jesus Christ, it wasn't needed. And that's what Galatians uh, 3.20, I think it is, says, do not frustrate the grace of God. For if our righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He died for nothing. Romans 4.8, blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That was him quoting from King David, who knew sin very vividly in his own life. Blessed is that man, blessed is that woman whom the Lord will not impute sin. Romans 5.12, we already read. Romans 5.13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. In other words, we could say, well, why do I have to pay for Adam? Why do I have to pay for his sin? He's the one that violated what God told him not to do. Why do I inherit his sin? Why do I have to pay for Adam's sin? That's the question that Paul is going to answer in this uh, chapter this morning. Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how we'll finish this chapter today. Paul answers one of the objections that some would have had to his statement in verse 12. Uh, they might say this, uh, what about those who lived before God gave the law? You know, what about them? You know, it was a, actually a, about a 1,400, 1,500 year period from the time of the fall to the time that God gave the law to Moses and to his people. Almost a 1,500 year period. What about the people in between that period, if God doesn't impute sin to those that don't have the law, then what happens to those people in between that period of time? 
They didn't have a law. They didn't actually break the commandment that God just gave to Adam. So aren't they kind of in a limbo state? You know, that period between the law. Paul addresses that. Paul explains in, uh, in verses 13 to 17, this is the explanation of verse 12. Look at your Bibles. It says, therefore, or excuse me, uh, verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. The conclusion really to verse 13 to 17 is in verse 18, look ahead. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. That one man's offense is speaking about Adam's. Resulting in condemnation. Even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Do you see the two things? Man stands under condemnation, even as the result of Adam's sin. Even in that 1,500-year period, they still stood under this inherited sin nature, we might say, that they received as a result of Adam's fall. The New uh, Living Translation reads this way in, uh, in Galatians 3.19. It says, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. Speaking about Jesus Christ. God gave His law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and His people. In verse 24, it says, Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. So why was the law given? The law was given as a schoolmaster, a tutor, to show man his sinfulness. To, but it also, in a sense, was a protector for mankind because God said, you shall not do this. And if you keep, and if you read the book of Leviticus, and you read all the laws that God had instituted and given to man, all the feasts that they did, in a sense, it was a type of protection for mankind until the promise came in Jesus Christ. You see, one time a year, that high priest could go in and make intercession for the people, make a provision for the people's sins. And year after year after year, until the promise came, then Jesus Christ, then all of that law was put aside. And the promise when He came, now through faith in Jesus Christ, we don't sacrifice anymore. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He's the one that goes on our behalf to the Father and says, I have given my righteousness to your bank account. And you stand holy and righteous before God, not based on your righteousness, but on the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you glad that it's not dependent upon you, but it's all dependent upon what He has done for you? 
That's the marvelous good news of our faith. Justification is apart from the law. Paul made that very clear. Works won't get you justified. The law can't get you justified. Circumcision can't get you justified. None of those acts of the flesh will ever make a person in right standing with God. Not a permanent right standing. Verse 14, look what it says. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So we see these two types. We see Adam, and then we see Christ. What Paul is saying here in verse 14 is that death still reigned. Remember I shared our two big enemies? Your big enemies of, our, uh, of every human being is sin and death. Those are our two enemies. Those were the things that Jesus had victory over at the cross and at the tomb. He gave us victory over those things. But Paul is saying here that death still reigned from Adam to Moses. That 1500 year period of time, death was still man's problem. You know how we know that? We read that in Genesis chapter 5, didn't we? Remember we went through that uh, names of those lists and Adam died. And it went through this whole list of names of his son and Seth died. He lived this many years and he died. And it got to the very end and it says that even Noah and his sons, even though they were saved from the flood and God sealed them in that ark, which was a type of Christ, They had to come off of that ark and they lived out their life until what? They died. They physically died. You see, death and sin, man can't escape. No one will ever escape those two things unless you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what gives us the victory over those two things. King David a thousand years before Christ, believed that sin and death began in his mother's womb. Remember, I'm talking about this sin nature that we have, that we've all inherited. It wasn't confusing to King David. King David saw and knew his sin. He saw how his life was, but it wasn't just his outward acts of sin that he did. He realized that, as it says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It's the same place for all of us. We're born with a sin nature. We go out and we do acts of sin because we have the very nature that is a result of Adam's sin. We all possess it. Everyone in this world does. And, and, and their bigger problem is not just their outward acts of sin, though that in itself is, will keep a person out of heaven. Their bigger problem is that we have a sin nature. And we do these acts of sins because of our nature. 
God also knew that the condemning of the human race by Adam would also lead to the saving of the human race by Jesus Christ. You see, he already had the remedy already planned out. He, you, know, you see, if we were put to the test in the garden, the same way that Adam was put to the test in the garden, we would have done the same thing. And every single human being would have done the same thing. That's why the provision was already made. That's why the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. In God's perspective of things, man would fall. He made man a free will agent. And making man a free will agent gave him the capacity to choose good or evil. And the propensity of man's flesh would be that he's going to go towards evil eventually. If it wasn't Adam, it would have been you. So that answers the question, why do I have to pay for Adam's sin? It would have been us. If it wasn't him, it would have been me. Adam, we might say, is the head of the human race. Uh, and, and sin was really brought forth into this world by, by Adam and also death. But Jesus Christ is the head of the New Testament church, isn't he? Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he's the head now of us. And he's the one that is able to impart his righteousness to you and I. Now look at verse 15. Paul is going to drive home the point. He's going to give us some contrast here. It's the way Paul has done all the way through this letter. To contrast two things to drive home a point to you and I. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more, underline those two words, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Verse 15, the contrast is the gift and the offense. The gift and the offense. One is given, isn't it? A gift is not something you typically earn it, is it? You don't earn gifts. They're typically given to you uh, out of a a love. Somebody gives you a gift. It's not something that you earn. But an offense is something we earn. It's something that we do. It's something that we deserve. And so there's this big contrast between the gift and the offense. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that of yourself. It is the gift of God. What is the gift that God has given to you and I? Well, he's given us one, grace, unmerited favor. We get something that we don't deserve. But he's also given to us as a gift, faith. You see, in yourself, God has given you just a small measure of faith. Enough faith to believe in the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Even that is a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not that of yourself. It is the gift of God. 
And so we just sit back and we say, thank you, Lord, for the gift. Thank you for the gift of grace. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for making it possible that I can be saved. Romans 6.23 tells us about wages. It says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. We earned death. We've earned it. The wages of sin, something that you earn, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have wages and we have a gift. And, 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 and it, one of two things, we either are earning death and we remain in that place, or we are receiving the gift that God offers. And we take hold of that and we take it to ourselves. Thank you for the gift. I didn't earn it. It's all by your grace. It's not something you owe me. It's not because of what I've done for you. It's all because of what you have done for me. And it's a gift from you. Paul goes on in verse 16, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in what? Your condemnation. The act of Adam's disobedience resulted in our condemnation. The gift that came through Jesus Christ, it resulted in our eternal life, giving us eternal life. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification, the free gift. Adam sinned and Christ obeyed. Adam sinned, Christ obeyed. He came to do the will of the Father, didn't he? All that he did, he went to that cross in obedience to the will of the Father, knowing that it was going to make the way for you and I to have eternal life. You see, the person who stands under condemnation, they actually stand under the wrath of God. How many people do you know that don't know Christ right now that are standing under the wrath of God. Loved ones, family, neighbors, people that are just living in this world without any regard to where their destiny is going to be. They stand under the condemnation of God. Condemnation means that we stand under God's wrath, that death is imminent. It, not only physical death, but spiritual death that judgment day is coming, that judgment will come. And by sheer definition, the word condemnation means to be judged guilty or to be condemned to hell. Now, what's the good news of all this? Romans, and we're not there yet, but Romans chapter 8, verse 1, do you know it? Do you have it memorized? Romans 8.1, For there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Whenever you see those words in Christ Jesus, it's speaking about somebody that has come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. If you're born again and you're saved and you know it this morning, then there's no condemnation to you. You don't stand under the wrath of God any longer. You don't stand in His judgment. You don't have to be fearful of a coming judgment day. Because there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 18, John wrote this, He who believes in Jesus is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the reason. Because they refuse to believe. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed." Jesus Christ came into a dark world and he was the light of the world. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that he came unto his own and his own received him not. He was this light that came into this dark world. He said, I don't want that. You're not the one. We don't need that. You see, those that refuse to believe, they stand condemned already. They already stand under the wrath of God. John 3.36 tells us that whoever believes on the Son has life, and whoever does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, they stand under the very wrath of God. Verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through one, much more, underline that, it's that much more again, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Wow. What a blessing. Two reigns. Here's that contrast again. Two reigns. To reign means to rule. To rule over something. He's contrasting two types of things that are reigning. You know, death reigned through one, speaking about Adam. Death reigned through Adam, contrasted with righteousness that will reign in life through Jesus Christ. You see the contrast? The question that we ask, are, which, one, which side am I on? Which one's reigning over me? Paul says... Death reigned, death ruled. But those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign and rule in life. Do you see the contrast? Quite a contrast between death and life. Death and life. That's the contrast that he's bringing out in here and what Christ has done for us. Paul then brings us to verse 18. We might say that this is a key verse to the remainder of this chapter 5. And notice how he starts it out. 
Do you see it there in verse 18? What's it say, therefore? Why does it say therefore because of what we just read before that? Therefore, in other words, take note of this because this is an important verse. As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Do we, are we all convinced of that now? We all, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. We've already talked about that. Even so, through one man's righteous act, speaking about Jesus Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. That's it. We've come all this way from chapter 1 to chapter 5, verse 18, to make this kind of a statement that we once were under the judgment of the fall of Adam. And now we have, through Jesus Christ, his righteous act, him going to that cross. He now has given us this gift that results, and the results of that is our justification of life. Two acts, what, by one man's offense and by one man's act of disobedience, we were made sinners, and by one man's act of obedience, many will be made righteous. There's the contrast. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that. Paul goes on to say, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God. And then he tells us how, by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's how we were made right. All of those past sins and all that past life and all of those things that we once partook of, He's made us right. He's washed our sins away. He's put us into right standing with Him. That's the good news of the Gospel. That's justification by faith. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And then we can close in verse 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21 speak about the reign of sin and the reign of grace. Sin and grace. Quite the contrast. Sin and grace. Look what he says. Moreover, the law entered 
that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded, what? Much more. Underline that one. I think it's the third time we've seen it. He uses these words much more. That's what's incredible about what the Lord has done. The law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, as soon as the law came, 1,500 years later, and it was given to Moses, as soon as God declared to mankind His law, it made our sinfulness even more evident. Because God had declared, thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. And it made it even more evident It wasn't that their sin nature wasn't there. It was there. And they had everything in them to sin. But when the law came, the offense abounded. And then it's almost like it came our way and go, man, it just slew me. Now I realize that there is no way that I can live up to this. I can't live up to this perfection. I can't try to please God by my efforts and, and, and somehow God's going to accept. Because there's not enough good in me to do that. The law will never justify a man or a woman. The law doesn't even make us sinners. Did you know that? The law doesn't even make you a sinner. Adam sinned, and when he sinned, that sin nature was passed on to you and I. It wasn't your acts of sin that condemned you. You already stood in a place of condemnation before you ever even did your first sin. I didn't have to teach my daughters how to sin. They just simply did it. I'm glad I didn't teach them that, but they did it on their own. Just like we do it on our own. It's because it's within inside of us. And when that law came, it slew me. Can't do it. I can't live up to it. It's why God gave it. To show man you're incapable of being able to obtain righteousness before me by keeping some law. The law is good. It protected mankind for a period of time. But when that law ended, it, was, it ended at the cross. We've been freed from the law. When we get to Romans chapter 7, that's what it's going to talk about. Freedom from the law. We've been freed from that law that once really just held man in its grasp. Sin, we're told, abounds. But the grace of God abounds much more. I love that. This gift of grace came by one man, Jesus Christ, and it abounds to many. We lived in uh, the UK for six years. And uh, the church that I pastored there, Calvary Chapel, Swansea, we periodically would go down and have church on the beach. We'd go out of the building and we'd go down and go down to Swansea Bay, this bay that was in the, this beach uh, city that we lived in. And 
in the UK, they have a, a tide table that's somewhere around 23 to 25 foot tide table. It's the second highest tide table in the world. And as I was standing there on these steps, this concrete steps that overlook Swansea Bay, I was teaching one Sunday from this text, from Romans chapter 5, and it came to my thought process as I stood there and watched the tide come rolling in into Swansea Bay. It's quite different when you have a tide table like that because what happens is, is that tide goes out, if you can imagine 25 feet of water kind of going out and when you look out there, you gotta go like this to see where the water went. And then when the tide comes back in, it comes in like this, it rolls in like this. And it just keeps rolling in and rolling in and rolling in. And I'm standing there teaching from this text and the Lord puts it on my, my mind. That's really what this abounding grace does. You see, as that water comes in, it doesn't go out. Like on the West Coast, you go to the beach, the wave come in and it crashes and then it rolls back out and come back, rolls back out. There, when that tide comes in, it's just like this. Just rolling over, rolling over, rolling over until all that 25 feet of water comes back up and fills the bay back up. Pretty incredible. But when I was standing there teaching that day and talking about where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The, the really, this abounding and this word abounding means that it overfloods your sin. It, you experience that every single day if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because you know how imperfect you are. You know how, how, how incapable you still are of being able to live a perfect Christian walk. None of us do. And you'll never obtain it in this flesh. That's why we stand under the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not in our own. But that grace that we need not only to be saved, we need that grace to walk in and to live in, don't we? We need His mercy and we need His grace. And that grace that overfloods your sin on a daily basis, when's the last time that we actually thank God for that? God, you just overflooded my sins today with this grace that you so freely give to me. I don't deserve it and you just keep flooding it over my sin as I come before you and say, God, would you forgive me? You know, you know what I've done today. You know the words. You know the look. You know this and that. You know all these things that I've done. And your grace just keeps flooding over my sin. That only happens if you're a child of God. We have such a great salvation and such a great opportunity to go out and tell this world what Christ has done for us. Just think, I encourage you to write down one person's name, two people's names that are on your mind right now and go, you know what, I need to pray for an opportunity to tell this wonderful grace, this good news to that person.
and then look for an open door. Look for God to give you an open door to share this good news with those people that don't know Him. So that as sin reigned in death, verse 21, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigning in death and grace reigning that leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Quite the contrast. That chapter 5 or this chapter 5 really completes a main section in Romans. It took us all five chapters to get through the issue of justification by faith. Clear up all the misconceptions that people might have about it. And when we get into chapter 6 next week, we're going to open up another area. It's called sanctification. And there's another one of those big words. Big word, but we need to know what it means. How it applies to our life. I'll simply say, it's the means and the way that we have victory over sin. Chapter 6. Chapter 7 is going to be freedom from the law. Chapter 8 is going to be freedom from death. That's what God has done for you and I. You read the first eight chapters of Romans in one sitting. Just straight read it. And when you get down to the end of chapter 8, you're going, wow, you're blowing my circuits, God. Look what you've done. I never realized it was that deep. I never realized it was that complete. I never realized that you, you've done it to this extent. I thought I was just kind of hoping I was going to get into heaven someday. No, I can have a confident expectation that I'm going to enter into the presence of God based upon what He has done for me, not what I've done for God. And everything that I do for God now, everything that we do for God now, should simply be a response to what He has done for you. That's what it is now. Now it's just a response. It's not getting me to heaven. It's, not, it's just simply a response to Him. Man, I, I want to give my life like a living sacrifice to you, God. Because you've saved me from condemnation and sin and death. And, that, and now I just want to give my life completely over to you. Let you be the Lord of my life. Let you, you know, you, you know that's, that's our response. And you know what? And God says, you know what? I love that. I love it when your heart is that way. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, Thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.